Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, less than 24 hours until the biggest moment of the week for your money. The jobs report looming large now. The investment committee sizing it all up for you as well. Joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, Joe Terranova here, Post 9, Amy Raskin, and Jim Labenthal. Let's check the markets. We're just a few seconds past 12 noon in the east, and we are, as Carl said, kind of in a holding pattern here. Nobody really wanted to make too many big moves ahead of tomorrow morning to release of that report. Dow's barely positive. S&P barely positive. NASDAQ a little bit better. The Russell, though, uh, is lower today, and bond yields are coming down a bit. We're going to get to all of that in just a moment. There's a lot to discuss with the committee and our halftime headliner, Brian Belsky. First, though, we do begin with breaking news this hour. President Biden officially unveiling his 2024 budget now. Our Kayla Tausche at the White House with more on that. Kayla. Hey, Scott, President Biden is proposing a budget that spends $6.8 trillion in the fiscal year beginning in September. That's an 8% raise over the prior year's spending to fund ambitious social programs and an expanded child tax credit. And while we're waiting on specifics of how much its individual proposed tax hikes will bring in, the White House estimates the federal government will receive about $5 trillion in tax revenues and pay $796 billion in interest on its debt. That's a 20% increase from last year as the Fed continues raising rates. And despite a pledge to lower the deficit by $3 trillion over 10 years, the deficit for fiscal 2024 projected to swell to $1.85 trillion. President Biden is also proposing $1 trillion in discretionary spending for non-defense. So that's all programs that aren't Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And he's calling for $885 billion in total defense spending. The White House says the main priority for that 10% increase is to compete with China. Scott? All right. Kayla, thank you. That's Kayla Tausche at the White House with the details on the Biden budget just released, as we said. Let's bring in our halftime uh, group here, our committee. Uh, Jim Labenthal, I'm going to go to you first. I mean, $885 billion, 10% increase in defense spending. Look, you've been talking about defense stocks. We'll just get a comment from you here before we move on. It's the you know unfortunate nature of the world that we live in. And it's not going away. It just isn't. I can't predict it. I don't think anybody can predict that. So I think defense spending is set to increase, not only here but abroad, but within the confines of the domestic agenda. When you look outside of defense, Scott, I, I don't think we need more spending right now. When inflation is our problem, uh, you know, when labor is in short supply, uh, more spending, just speaking from an economistic point of view, is just not what we need. Well, the idea, too, is that this the, the so-called Biden budget is DOA, um, well, just because, of, you know, the split in Congress, it kind of it is what it is. And it sets up a clash with Republicans who are going to reveal their own spending plan and priorities sometime this uh, spring. Let's move, though, and talk about the, the market itself. I, I want to get to, Amy, this setup ahead of tomorrow. Uh, the biggest event of the week. There, of there's no doubt, right? We've, we've listed sort of the 12 or 13 most critical 
trading days of the year. The Powell uh, on the appearance on the Hill was the first sort of hurdle to get over. Tomorrow morning is a big one. How are you thinking about it? Um, you know, if the number's weaker than expected, the market's going to like it and trade up. You saw that a little bit this morning with jobless claims. Um, so if it's stronger than expected, you're going to hear more talk about the Fed's going to be above 6% and something's going to break. I'm not sure that's right, but that's what where, where it's going to go. Yeah. So, Josh, you know, size this up for me now. Uh, this is not overstating it, I don't think, in, in any way uh, that tomorrow morning and this jobs report, looms large. It's going to be a binary event, you have to believe. Yeah, we got a little bit of an upside surprise to jobless claims today. Um, it's, it's really the, you really want to be watching, uh, you know, a multiple week average and not, you know, overtly focusing on one specific week just because you got the outcome you wanted. And the, the labor market is just incredibly, incredibly tight. And that's not going to change no matter what happens tomorrow. It would be hard for me to uh, come up with a number, like maybe negative 300,000 or something, that would drastically uh, reduce people's expectations for what the Fed wants to and probably has to do. So, you know, barring some kind of crazy downside shock, uh, I don't really see things changing much. Um, but that's okay. The first rate hike of this cycle was one month ago this week. And that was a 25 basis point increase by the Fed. And if I had uh, popped onto the show that we, I was probably on that day um, and said we would be openly discussing 6% plus Fed funds rate a year from now, your predictions, everyone on the panel's predictions for where the stock market would be today would probably be 20 or 30% lower than where we are. And so that's the good news. Look at what this stock market has been able to endure. Um, we, we've gone from 0% interest rates to now openly debating whether or not 6% is the right number in just 12 months' time. And stocks have acted incredibly well in the face of that, along with an earnings picture that's really not great. Um, so the bears will tell you, just you wait and see. The worst is yet to come. Maybe they'll be right. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're in the, the moderate to bullish camp, you have a very big feather in your cap right now. This market has been able to endure the, one of the fastest rate hike cycles, one of the most severe rate hike cycles we've ever seen. And we're still looking pretty okay right now. So, Joe Terranova, I know that you over the last you know, couple of days have been really paying close attention to the divergence between the Russell and, say, the NASDAQ. Now, as I'm asking you this question, of course, the NASDAQ has since gone negative. Um, but nonetheless, the Russell's down about 1%. What do you think the message is? At least what are you so attuned to pay attention to there? It's puzzling, but I'm hoping that it's positioning. And I think it falls back upon the way that the consensus was positioning the portfolio coming into 2023. If you look a little bit beyond just the Russell, Scott, you'll see in the last several days the emerging markets, China, they're down significantly. And these are the places that the playbook suggested that you wanted to be. So I'm hoping that this is nothing more than positioning and basically everyone caught on the wrong foot here and not having enough technology, enough communication services. But I think it's worth watching. And I think clearly today uh, it has pulled down the entirety of the market. And you can't just say that it's a result of 
the concerns that we're seeing in regional banks. It extends beyond that. You have Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, uh, Wells Fargo, all down 4%. Schwab is down 6%. So it's the entirety of the financial sector, and I think it's, it's, it's certainly worth uh, watching. Do you, do you think, Joe, that it, it's recession fear related? I mean, if you get the, the pickup in claims, you can, you, know, you can try to build a narrative, okay, that this is you know, the first building block in place to an environment where you know, the, the job picture starts to reverse. You have more concerns about a recession in the, in the nearer term, which would be theoretically pretty bad for small cap stocks. Yeah, I think that's part of it for sure. You're not going to get the potential economic recovery that many have suggested in which if you go back to the 1980s shows that from an equity size class perspective, it is small caps that lead the market higher. Uh, I'm not fully convinced, though, just yet that that's exactly what this is. Um, I, I, listen, I'm being very candid. I view this as remarkably puzzling given the strength and resiliency that you're seeing in the NASDAQ, and then this offsetting weakness. And it really is not a one-day event. It's something that's been unfolding over the last three days. I mean, but we, we have in, let's just bring in Brian Belsky right now, by the way. He's our halftime headliner. He's here yeah. with us, and I, I want to get him in the conversation. Um, what we're seeing in the financials today, uh, how concerning is that to you? Um, the Russell, which doesn't tend to be the case, seems to be leading the overall market today. Yeah, thanks for having Driven us. Driven by what's happening in the, in the financials. Yeah, so we have been kind of solely positioned, uh, Scott, within our financial holdings, within the big banks, the Canadian banks, uh, broker-dealers, and asset managers. We've avoided the regional banks for some of the reasons and some of the things that we're seeing right now, especially with net interest margins being squeezed. Uh, and clearly, Joe brought up a great point with respect to this could be some recession fears. But we're playing the longer-term theme of scale. And that's why we own those three industries within financials. And I'll remind you, too, of a couple things. Financials are getting bigger as of next Friday because you're having a lot of the payment companies leave technology and go into financials. So financials are going to be a bigger part of the market. Their growth rate's going up. But, oh, by the way, their multiple's going up as well. We still view that financials are the value play in the market, and we believe value is going to be the discipline for the next three to five years. So we would be buying the weakness in the Bank of America's and J.P. Morgan's. You know, I, I don't want to get off of the uh, regional bank story. Guys, back in the control room, if you can give me the, the KRE, uh, please, the regional bank ETF, I want to sort of zero in on that, which is hitting a new multi-year low uh, back to February of, of 2021. So you're talking about a couple of years. It's down 6%. You overlay that on the S&P uh, today, and you get a pretty good picture uh, the Russell, obviously, if you if you overlay that, you, you get a pretty good look, uh, Amy, yep. in, in what's happening within the market that some uh, John Spallanzani, for example, emailing me uh, talking about the carnage that you're seeing in, in the financials today. What does it mean to you? Well, in general, credit spreads, I mean, people are worried that credit spreads are going to go up and they've been really well behaved and we're starting to see some signs of that breaking and that cracking and that's going to hurt, hurt the financials. Um, but and I think what Josh said at the beginning of the show is really, really important. I mean, we've raised rates by 475 bits in a year. And we, I mean, the Fed tried to normalize rates in 2018 and the market was down 20% in six months. 
I mean, this is, we've had an incredible amount of rate rises and the market's held in there, the economy's held in there. And I do think that we have to look at what that really means. And maybe it means that the markets and the economy is less rate sensitive than it used to be. So I think people are having the knee-jerk reaction with financials um, and worrying about credit spreads and worrying about a near-term recession, which I don't think is really in the cards. Um, so it might be an opportunity. Yeah, default risk uh, hey, judge, perhaps in the market. Judge? Yeah, go ahead, Josh. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's, it's three banks. That that were that that are that are driving what you're seeing in in the regionals. So Silvergate, which effectively is now I guess going to be a zero, um, went all in crypto. Then throw up Signature Bank, SBNY, not all yeah, in crypto. I'm crypto adjacent at it right now, which as is a bad fact, enough. I'm, I'm, okay. Yeah, Signature is okay. down near eight percent. So we're going to show all these as you're talking. Go ahead. Okay, this was a three hundred and forty-five dollar stock. It's ninety-four. This is not even an all-in crypto bank. They happen to have done a little bit of crypto banking, and at the end of last year, they told shareholders, we're out. And they've been deliberately winding down the exposure they have to crypto. At this point, it's very small. Um, and then Silicon Valley Bank is the real story today, because this is not really crypto. This is the number one bank levered to technology and startups uh, more specifically. And this thing is cratering SVB. That's what's going on. It's not, people aren't selling regional banks because they think all of a sudden there's a recession because uh, jobless claims this week outperformed by 10,000 jobs. That's not the story. These are very specific uh, banks with specific idiosyncratic problems, mostly to do with high multiple, high valuation, venture capital slash crypto stuff. And listen, it's scary. And if you're a regional bank investor, you probably have exposure to one of these names. They're big names, uh, maybe not Silvergate. The other two, these are important names in the group. So let's not turn this into all of a sudden there's a recession bet on. There's been a recession bet on. The market, uh, uh, market participants, global portfolio managers have been positioned for recession for 15 months now. Um, yeah, so for sure, this but is really a very specific story. It, it is, but it's, it's you know, the, the losses within this space, Jim, are, you know, fairly widespread beyond just the names that Josh is talking about. Key Corp down four and a half, uh, U.S. Bank Corp down four, Regions down four, Truist fifth third, Ameriprise, Huntington Bank shares, they're up you know, year you're, you're seeing. They're, they're up year to date. The, uh, <laughs> The XLF names, which are the ones that really matter, are, are not that bad. So if, we, if this was really about fears of a systemic banking issue, you would not see JP Morgan at 132. It would be 102. Sure, but, but this, the losses that, that I just mentioned of the 3 and 4% variety are tripled over the last month. So it's, it's more than a one-day uh, effect. Jimmy, please. Well, just a couple of things here. One of the reasons that I like the big money center banks instead of the regionals is because you don't have just all of this on really the microcosm of net interest margin, notwithstanding the specific issues at, say, Silvergate. Most of these regional banks are really tied to net interest margin. I like the big money center banks because there's more diversity. As Josh is pointing out, these things really are hanging in there, and the XLF is basically flat on the year. So, you know, they are not screaming recession. Um, I think Josh has got it dead right 
But the one thing I will add is, look, I think all investors have been conditioned that the day before potentially market moving economic indicators like tomorrow, you've been rewarded for taking risk off the day before. You just generally have. The odds have been in your favor. Um, so I think that you're seeing a little bit of that today, not just in the regionals, not just in the XLF, but in the market overall. Well, let's you know, we we're going to do this a little later, but it, it would be silly to wait. Um, let's just do this Goldman upgrade. As we're talking about all of this stuff, it's reiterated a buy over at Bank of America. Target goes to 425. Amy sitting next to me owns owns Goldman. So how should we think about what we're seeing in the financials and uh, put this call into some perspective as you think about it for a stock you own? Yeah, no, I think I think what Jim said is, is spot on. The financials have been acting really well generally, especially when people are worried about a recession. I mean, it's not just the financials, all the cyclical stocks. You've had enter, you know, the best three sectors over the last 12 months have probably been in energy, industrials, and financials. So I think that tells you something. I, and I do think, you know, we like Goldman. Um, you know, we haven't been adding to it recently. Recently, but generally speaking, I do think the financials as a sector, as Brian said, are relatively um, attractive from a valuation perspective and are better positioned than they have been in a long time. Obviously, much depends for you know this space and all of you and the, the markets overall on, on where rates go. Um, I said at the top of the show they're falling today. Are they going to continue going down? Gunlock, Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line doesn't think so, tweeting, uh, the two-year yield chart looks like the top is not in place. Long rates remain in a multi-month range. Belsky, you want to you want to take that on of where because you're you're more bullish than many. Um, you you can't have rates continue to go up if you're as bullish as you are. I mean, well, it just doesn't. It's not going to work. Well, no. Breaking news, Scott. By the way, breaking news. Halftime has has learned that you're that, not bullish. That we're not going back to zero interest rates. <laughs> okay, so let's 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 grasp that. But let's also understand that this is a path toward normalization. So what does that mean? If you look, if you take out the financial crisis, the average 10-year Treasury is seven percent. If you if, since since the financial crisis, the average 10-year Treasury is 2.4 percent. The average 10-year Treasury, including the financial crisis, five percent. Blah blah blah. What does that mean? It means that we can be in a four to five or three to four percent uh, rate for a while in a, in a normalization like the 80s and 90s where you had single-digit earnings growth, high single-digit performance in the market, a tamer bond market. I think that's where we're going, but we have to shock and awe on the downside, shock and awe on the upside, and then settle into this new range of normalization. Well, see, that's, that's one of the interesting questions and the, the conversations that we've had with, with other you know, market watchers, observers, participants all the above, who say, oh, you know, we, we've had rates throughout history that are, are much higher, and, and, and the world was just fine. Yep. They missed the point, though, that you've gone to your point, shock and awe, from zero to 1,000 miles an hour in the course, as Josh said, of, of a year ago, nearly exactly. We've done eight rate hikes over that period of time. Yep. We'll call it 500 basis points worth of, of hikes, because we know what's coming in a couple of weeks, and we're not stopping there. No, think of it as a marathon, right? I mean, if you're no, but running, this has been a sprint. No, but no, but here's where I'm going. The market is acting, and, and some participants in the, are acting. The people that have been in the business less than 10 years, we're going to come out mile one, Don't two. Don't drop your 30-year history. I didn't say I'm not going to say it. I know. You, I we're coming out fast, mile one and two. You know what happens after that? You, you you die basically. And I think we have to start to to pace ourselves and understand, okay, that markets aren't going to be like this forever. Okay, that we've endured really since 2019, and for the most part, the last 15 years. But I think we're heading back into an 80s and 90s environment, 
okay, where it's kind of mid 80s. So, so you take Madonna borderline and then you take Nirvana lithium and you give the borderline personality disorder some lithium just to settle down because that's what we're doing. We're settling down, becoming back to normal. Yeah, but see, if you, if you get in your car, okay, and you put the, the pedal right to the floor and you go from zero to 200 miles an hour, the engine might break. Something might break, okay? We're not talking about a race car, we're talking about a normal car. And okay? it could be Silvergate. So, <laughs> yeah. so when you do that, it's akin to the, the Fed raising 475, 500 basis points in the scale of one year, okay? And just assuming, you two, assuming that there's not going to be, a hose doesn't break. Something doesn't go wrong that, oh, it's just fine. Some things no have deal. broken. Some things have broken, and I'm sorry I interrupted you with Silvergate, but there's other things. I mean, look at what crypto is, and look at what happened to that whole ecosystem. Uh, look at NFTs, and I'm not trying to pile on with anybody who on anybody who's lost money, but you know, the real excessive speculative bubbles have had the air taken out of them. Um, and by the way, technology right now, you know, over the last several months, is having its bubble moment. So, look, I, your point is well made. Something does have to break when you raise 500 basis points. My counter argument to you is some things have broken. Um, um, but you know what hasn't really broken is the overall economy. And we don't have to go through the reasons why. But you know what would really scare me is if you saw, like, consumer staples companies coming out and announcing 10,000 uh, layoffs. Think about this for a second. To really get things to break, you need, for, to get to the Fed's 4% unemployment rate, you need to see, like, 6 million jobs lost over the rest of the year. Think about that in monthly terms. That's pretty huge. You don't get it from Salesforce laying off 17,000 a When a gasket breaks on a car, though, there's collateral damage, right? And there was collateral damage to this market. Scott, into investors. I like to call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but it's also those names that you throw a dart, they go up, and you throw a dart, they all go down. What are they? High multiple tech stocks, uh, SPACs, memes, and oh, by the way, crypto as well. That was the collateral damage that hurt investors, that hurt the, the semblance of investing in the stock market. But to me, and I've been on the show, I never thought any of those were investable assets. And that's why if you have the experience and you can have normalization and be calm, things are going to be fine. Joe Terranova, weigh in on that. Yeah, you know, I think we're, we're having this uh, debate over the economy, and, and I just go back to positioning, and I go back to the beginning of the year, and I don't think anyone's got this right. I think this year, Scott, is a classic example of you've got a choice. It's binary. Do you want to be in cash? Well, I don't want to be in cash. I want to be in the market, and if I'm going to be in the market, the playbook right now, it is as difficult and as unclear as it was in 2022. So you have to be diversified. You know, we're talking about what we think value is going to outperform over the next three years. Well, so far, energy struggling year to date. Financials, listen, everyone came into the year saying financials were their best sector. You want it to be overweight. Financials are basically unchanged on the year. That's very disappointing from a performance perspective relative to communication services, to technology, to consumer discretionary. And by the way, those three sectors, how many people came on the show and said you want to be overweight those three sectors at the beginning of the year? I certainly didn't say that. Energy's down. Healthcare. Last year, everyone talked at nauseum about healthcare being the leading sector. Healthcare's down 6% year to date. Look at the emerging markets. Look at China. They're underperforming. Everyone hated Europe. Europe's giving you NASDAQ-like returns. So I just look at all this collectively and I say, is the market have this right? It does not. It's difficult. I'm there. I feel it. I think it's frustrating. And I think the best defense against that is to sprinkle your investments across a broad sector of sectors and equity size classes. That's the so, only defense until the clarity comes forth. 
some, Josh, you know, say that the the market's not going to roll over like many expected. It still might until tech rolls over, since we're, we're talking about what sectors you want to be in, where some investors have been surprised since the start of the year, out of position for many. Jonathan Krinsky says if the XLK starts to roll over, that will be when the S&P finally breaks below 3,900 and we see volatility expand to the upside. You, you want to just talk about this idea that that tech is what he says is the lone holdout of the three big sectors within the S&P? Well, it's still critically important just mathematically, as we all know, even though those valuations have come down and the proportion of the S&P made up by um, the large cap tech names is smaller, it's still big and it's still bigger than any other sector. And it'll probably remain that way throughout the course of this year. So we can't discount the importance of those stocks, to the overall market. But I would like to point out throughout the trauma of 2022, when you look at like the rebound that we saw in the markets in, let's say, from October through Christmas, uh, those stocks didn't really play a part in it. You had tremendous upside in industrials, in materials, in all sorts of other sectors that maybe on their own aren't that big, but when combined, uh, made 2022 a little bit more of a palatable year for most investors who weren't overweight FANG. Um, so that phenomenon does tend to kick in when overall the economy's okay, even if there is a bubble um, that's, that's deflating. Now, those stocks are not as expensive as they were last year before the big declines. Don't forget, we've already seen Amazon get cut in half. We've already seen Meta get cut in half. Those stocks are not exactly cheap, but they're not quite as expensive. And more importantly, from a sentiment perspective, I don't think they're as over-owned as they used to be. I don't think they're as overemphasized in investor portfolios as they used to be. And I don't think any of the problems individually with those companies are not very well known at this point. Like everyone is aware of the challenges each of those gigantic tech stocks uh, now face, right. whether it's regulatory or whatever. So I think it's a better setup to say that those stocks can hold up here. But even if they don't, the, the last time we saw them get be beaten up, there was a, a tailwind of money coming out and going into other sectors. And there's no reason to think that that couldn't happen this time as well. So before we take a break, Belsky, I, I want to get into some detail with your your base case scenario, which I'm looking at now. All right. Yep. Forty forty three hundred yep. for the S&P, two hundred and twenty dollars of earnings. Yep. Um, so that's nineteen and a half times. ish, yeah. Right. How are we going to do that? Well, first off, the 220 is down 5% from the 230 uh, earnings number. So I think that's I think that's palatable. And numbers are trending there already. They're trending. One. They're trending lower. Yeah, they're trending. They're, they're not below 220. They're no, like they're 222. 220. Yeah, 222. So they've come down a fair amount. But I do believe the second half of the year we're going to see solidification. And that's been kind of our call. And that's really based on when we take a look at cash flow and the strength of earnings, unbeknownst of what other people are saying. On the 4,300 as well, we do think that we're going to see an uplift the second half of the year, especially as we get some clarity with the Fed, number one. Number two, though, in when markets recover from bear market lows, on average, we see six and a half multiple points increase, six and a half multiple points. So again, stocks can go up in a rising rate environment. I think that's what we're heading into. And 4,300, I think, is very, very doable. I hope I'm wrong and we hit our best case scenario, which is 4,800. But the, you know, 
what, what is a 17 and a half times, I think, ish market right now is going to deserve a 19 and a half, 20 multiple? I think so, because you're going to be paying for stability. I go back, you're going to go back and look at the standard deviation of earnings growth in the United States is very low, meaning very stable. And I think what you want to do is something that Josh talked about, but here's, here's the kind of way to think about it. For every sector of the market, you want to go down in cap size. You want to think more about equal weighted versus, versus weighted sectors and really be an investor. I think too many people are talking about the market and they're not looking at stocks. The, stock, the market is a market of stocks and we need to be investors in stocks. We'll leave it there. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much, All Scott. Right, it's BMO's Brian Belsky. Up next, Joe is making some moves in his portfolio. A familiar name is back in his book. The trades are next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime. I'm Bertha Coombs, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. NBC News has learned that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is currently receiving treatment in a hospital, was attending an event connected with his super PAC when he tripped and fell in a Washington hotel last night. Several senators are telling NBC they haven't spoken with the 81-year-old minority leader directly and have no information about his condition. The top Democrat in the Senate says his thoughts are with his Republican counterpart. This morning I offer a prayer of strength and healing for the leader and his family. I called the leader this morning and spoke briefly with his staff to extend my prayers and well wishes. The state of California will not renew a $54 million contract with Walgreens to supply its prisons in order to protest the drugstore chain's decision not to sell an abortion medication in 21 states after GOP attorneys general threatened legal action. Walgreens notes no other big chains have said that they are taking a different approach. And in central Japan, a sign of spring. Workers are removing what are known locally as snow umbrellas, a combination of ropes and pillars that prevent tree branches from breaking under the weight of snow. Another sign of spring there, temperatures rose to around 70 degrees, which is warmer than usual in the area. Cherry blossoms can't be too far behind, Scott. All right, Bertha, thank you, Bertha Coombs. All right, Joe, let's talk about this move, okay? You sold CrowdStrike on December 5th. You just bought it back, and I want to know why. Well, I said the other day on Closing Bell with you, I was hoping that they would give me a reason to re-enter the trade and move away from the QQQ, and that's exactly what they did. The annual recurring revenue was at a record. There was booking strength. And when we look at the technical formation of this company, 
it looks remarkably compelling. The 50-day is turning higher, and it's doing it on what's known as range expansion. The 100-day moving average is well within sight. And this is a company that clearly is well-positioned in cybersecurity. It's had dramatic underperformance relative to Palo Alto. I want it to be there. And overall, from a portfolio perspective, let's understand what this does. And I think you know this, Scott. This gives me a little bit more of the growth trade where I almost felt as if I was short last week watching a lot of the NASDAQ rally as aggressively as it did. So as far as it goes with the Qs, the low from Friday, which is 294.87, it held perfectly yesterday at 294.88. So that's not violated, okay? And the NASDAQ still holds the key to the market, in my opinion, because I do believe if you're not long there, you're basically short the market. But I wanted to move a little bit more towards individual growth names. I had bought Twilio. Now I'm adding CrowdStrike. They delivered on the earnings report. All right. Um, Josh, you still own Crowd, yeah? Yeah. Uh, listening to the call yesterday, the most important thing that I heard was that uh, Q1 backlog is at a new record. This is uh, what, what's changed is that sales cycle is lengthening, according to uh, the CEO, George Kurtz. So this is something that you've heard from other large SaaS uh, companies, other enterprise software companies, and that's to be expected. There's a lot of uncertainty in the C-suites all over the world, not just here. Uh, nobody knows what the next shoe is to drop. There's not a lot of confidence, uh, the interest rate picture, inflation. So the fact that they still have this huge backlog, but it's taking a little bit longer to close sales, well, that's to be expected. So, you know, that, that's kind of the thing that I wanted to hear about. Um, but they are still winning tons of business. And uh, I'm very happy to be a long-term investor here. All right, good stuff. Mike Santoli is going to join us next with his midday word. First, though, as we head to break, a message from Ventas CEO, Deborah Cafaro, as CNBC celebrates women's heritage. From a very young age, I've really been interested in achievement and getting things accomplished. And my parents instilled that in me, along with a really good work ethic. I think it's really important to be fearless and to be confident. And one framework I've used in decision making for my own personal career as well as for Ventas is the upside downside, where if you really can see an upside that substantially outweighs the downside, that's the green light to go ahead and make that decision and go forward. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back. Eamon Javers has a news alert for us on J.P. Morgan. 
What are we learning here, Eamon? Well, Scott, a federal judge has just granted a motion to compel J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon to turn over documents in this ongoing lawsuit involving the U.S. Virgin Islands and allegations of misconduct surrounding Jeffrey Epstein. What we know is that the U.S. Virgin Islands are accusing J.P. Morgan of, in effect, being in collusion with Epstein by allowing him to remain a client of the bank until 2013. That ongoing litigation battle has been going on for some time. There is a battle as part of that about discovery. Which J.P. Morgan documents can the U.S. Virgin Islands get access to during the course of this lawsuit? One of the things that the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands wanted was documents related to Jamie Dimon himself. They submitted a request to the judge uh, to force J.P. Morgan to provide those documents all the way up through 2019. The judge now has agreed with that. Uh, here's the wording of the uh, exact motion that's been granted by the federal judge. Uh, this would be an order compelling defendant J.P. Morgan Chase to provide discovery responses covering the full temporal scope of the government's claims, that is the government of the USVI, claims through 2019 and documents for custodian James Diamond. So uh, it appears here, Scott, what's going to happen now is J.P. Morgan will be forced to turn over those documents and the U.S. Virgin Islands will be able to sift through them to see if there's any discovery material here which pokes holes in J.P. Morgan's uh, contention that it did nothing wrong here and that Jamie Diamond himself uh, did nothing wrong here. Scott, back over to you. Well, I mean, the, uh, the other part of this story that was making news today is, is that news Eamon, that J.P. Morgan is suing, you know, that former executive, right. Jess Staley. Right. Uh, so it's That's all an sort offshoot. of part of all, all part of this, uh, the same broad story. That's right. So what we what we have here is the U.S. Virgin Islands suing J.P. Morgan, alleging that J.P. Morgan uh, was engaged in inappropriate conduct by allowing Jeffrey Epstein to remain at the bank. Now, J.P. Morgan, as of today, as of last night, has sued Jess Staley, its own former executive who was responsible for managing uh, the Epstein accounts inside the bank and saying, hey, wait a second, we're not admitting that we did anything wrong here or we owe anybody any money. But if we do, it's Jess Staley who did something wrong. He's the guy who's going to have to to pay us back uh, if we are hit here and have any liability here financially and otherwise. They're trying to recoup all of Jeff Staley's, uh, Jess Staley's compensation from certain years that he worked at J.P. Morgan. Remember, he was there from 1979 up until 2013 and at one point was viewed as the heir apparent to Jamie Dimon. Now uh, he is uh, being blamed by J.P. Morgan and by extension Jamie Dimon uh, for any wrongdoing that took place with regard to Jeff Jeffrey Epstein. So J.P. Morgan is saying, hey, we didn't do anything wrong, but if anything wrong happened here, it was this guy and he was a rogue employee. Yeah, looking uh, from the reports, uh, looking for clawbacks from uh, 2006 to 2013. Right. Uh, unknown amount of money, of course, but just based on some figures that have been thrown around, we could be looking at uh, tens of millions of dollars, at least according to some of the reports. Could uh, be a lot that, of money. What we've, in front of me. And the, the crucial part about what we've learned here in the, in the course of this case is that Jess Staley, at the same time he was at J.P. Morgan and he was responsible for Jeff, overseeing Jeffrey Epstein's accounts, was a close personal friend of Epstein who was at Epstein's private island in Epstein's hot tub, exchanging emails with Epstein about uh, young women, uh, ex using all kinds of code phrases, apparently referring to young women. Uh, this was a deep and personal relationship between those two men. Uh, what J.P. Morgan is saying in their lawsuit here is, we had no idea about any of this, and therefore it's not our fault. Yep. Eamon, I appreciate uh, the report. Uh, we'll you continue bet. to follow it, uh, obviously. Eamon Javers from Washington for us. Uh, 
Mike Santoli is uh, waiting here. We're going to take a quick break. He's going to come back with his midday word next. We're back with senior markets commentator Mike Santoli sitting next to me for his midday word. Uh, the great wait, should we call it that, for tomorrow morning? Yeah, and anxiously so, I yeah. would say. The market's trying to stay supported kind of the hard way, which is to say, uh, you know, banks doing what they're doing on the downside. Mm-hmm. And really, there's been some wear and tear on the breadth of the market. So you've seen, you know, the small cap stocks back off a little more. Um, so the way I've been thinking about it is the market coming out of the gate this year built up a really nice cushion, very broad rally into the early part of, the, of last month. And it's utilized that cushion on the downside. Uh, so... You know, I mean, I think you might be able to look through the wreckage and Bank of America is now trading at exactly book value again. Um, in the last five or six years, that's been, you know, pretty much the floor, uh, except when we were in the 2020 recession. So I, I think there are things that are happening that might start to get interesting, uh, but it does seem as if there's plenty to prove. Now, jobs number tomorrow, mm-hmm. what's the line in terms of what's cool enough, I think is a good debate. Um, but I don't think it has to come in below the formal consensus. It probably can just be not a blockbuster number, maybe with some downward revisions, that'd be okay. You mentioned Bank of America, and I want your opinion on what you you, you see in the, especially the regional banks. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty ugly. Very. And it's more than a three-stock or one-day phenomenon. Right. So you can, you can basically go down your list of reasons to worry about it. We know the ones that are out front with these individual situations, whether it's Silicon Valley Bank with their particular type of borrower set, deposits leaving. But all of the regional banks have at least some commercial real estate exposure. They all really are going to have a hard time competing for deposits if they need to because of where short-term you know, money market type yields are. So I think that a lot's working against them at this point. Um, the group has actually sort of saved itself right around this level. If you look at the ETF over the last few mm-hmm. years, I mean, you know, we'll see if that's relevant or not. Uh, but yeah, that shows you the macro. And, it, you know, it's funny because we're talking about the lagged effects of the Fed tightening sure. cycle. Well, yeah, we keep looking for that in employment and in consumer spending. But this is kind of where it's the slow moving things that are showing up in terms of just the degradation of, of, of some balance sheets uh, in the system. Something we're going to keep an eye on. We'll talk again uh, in a All couple right. hours on Closing Bell. Talk about the Russell, too. Now, a lot of these are part of that. Uh, The Russell's the the big loser today. That's Mike Santoli. We'll see him again in closing bell. Up next, the setup on Oracle ahead of its earnings today in overtime. Halftime's right back. We've got Oracle earnings in overtime tonight. Shares nearly doubling the performance of the NASDAQ. Over the last three months, an options activity signaling another large move when those numbers do hit the tape. On that note, let's get to Blue Line Capital's Bill Baruch. He has what we call now the setup. What should we look for? Thanks, Judge. Yeah, we're seeing the applied uh, move on Oracle today at about $3.75 or 4.2%. We've seen the put call ratio at 0.525, and that's actually fallen as the session has unfolded on large call volume. And about 50% of the calls being purchased, I see them as more speculative because they're um, farther from the money. And from that, we're seeing the 95 strike that expires tomorrow as of 11 a.m. Eastern time, getting about 3,700 contracts in volume. And that's about 14% of the overall volume on the options uh, there today. So a lot of call speculation and that expires tomorrow. About half of the overall volume in general expires tomorrow. But Oracle's been trending above the 50-day moving average since October 21st. That may explain some of the call speculation. 
All right. We will see what happens. Bill Baruch, thank you very much for our setup. Josh Brown, you own it. It's a new buy of yours a couple weeks ago, I think. Talk to me. Yeah, this is a combination of a stock where the fundamentals are aligning with the technicals. I see a technical breakout barring some sort of massive miss in earnings, which, of course, would obliterate the technical case. Um, But even if that does not happen as a result of this earnings report, um, I'm still going to be here. This is a relatively new position for me. It's not a trade. It's an investment. I don't need a breakout anytime soon. However, this stock is less than 3% from a 52-week high. It's one of the only very large cap tech companies you could say that about. It's only 15% from all-time highs, which was the market peak back in 2021. It's held in there better than almost any other large cap uh, tech stock that you could think of. And the reason why is that this is a company that very quietly is taking market share in the cloud and consistently delivering. In the quarters ended August 2022, uh, and uh, and uh, November 22, Oracle had 18% and 19% revenue growth, uh, respectively. There's not a lot of that going on right now elsewhere in this space. So I think Oracle is is safe to hold through earnings. At least I hope it will be. Um, and the mm-hmm. technical breakout, if and when it comes into the mid-90s and then eventually over 100, will be very nice to see. I don't know if it happens this time, but let's hope. Give me something brief, too, on DocuSign, right? It's another reasonably new purchase of yours, which also reports tonight in OT. Yeah, I have, a, I have a very, very small amount of DocuSign. I do not trust this company necessarily. And while it's not a cheap stock, it is right now the cheapest it's ever been. It's trading at five times enterprise value to revenue, 33 times enterprise value to free cash flow. Again, not cheap, but I want you to understand something. The five-year median for those two metrics, 14 times and 145 times, respectively. So this is as cheap as you've ever been able to get it. DocuSign has been free cash flow positive since 2019. The last two quarters, they actually expanded uh, profit margin by 1% to 2%. So um, I'm hoping that this will be the quarter that they demonstrate the efficiency that everyone else is talking about. They've been doing layoffs. We'll see if that happens here. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll do final trades next. It's been a busy busy hour of news, and we have more uh, right now with Julia Borston. Julia? Disney CEO Bob Iger speaking at the Morgan Stanley conference just now. Some key headlines out of there. He says he's generally bullish on streaming, and he's extremely bullish on some of the company's streaming prospects, notably Disney+. Plus. Talking about the strength of Disney Plus's content there. He also talks about profitability. Remember, the company just did some meaningful layoffs. He says they need to better rationalize their costs, but the key thing to figure out is pricing strategy, saying that in order to grow subs, they were off in terms of the pricing strategy, and now they are learning more about it and are adjusting accordingly. Um, he talks about the rationalization they need to do from a pricing perspective, and they do have this need to go to grow subscribers. But they also need to come to grips with the rising cost of production. And here's something really interesting here, Scott. He says figuring out how much volume, content volume, they need for the platform. Of course, we could read into this and see what he might be indicating about his plans for Hulu, but no comments there just yet. He also says the advertising is still very new on Disney+. Plus. Back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you very much for that update. 
on Disney and those comments from CEO Bob Iger. Uh, Amy, next to me, you own Disney, and you told me a moment ago you're thinking about adding more. Yep, we've been looking to add to our position. We think the stock, just from a technical perspective, has been acting really well. The parks are packed and booked at record levels two quarters out, and streaming really is the wild card, and I like what I just heard, so we're looking at it. Okay. You, you own Disney, too? Yeah, and Paramount, as you know, and both of them are looking at price increases. And I think you'll see price increases for both of them, which will actually help profitability arrive sooner. Look, both stocks have done very well this year, but they're still uh, one half of the rise that they were in early February. So they've given some back. They're a little bit hostage to the market overall. Josh, um, let's say you were a little less than complimentary recently about Disney's content overall. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a fan, but the movies are terrible. I hope it turns around now. This is stuff that was not uh, done under Iger, so maybe he'll uh, go back to the, the drawing board and do a better job. All right, so let me tell you what, about what's coming up. Uh, closing bell, just a couple hours' time. Uh, get you caught up there. We've got Cameron Dawson today. Dubrovko Lakos of J.P. Morgan has a new note. And you need to hear about that. We'll tell you about it in just a couple hours on Closing Bell. Stephanie Link with us, former Dallas Fed president. Richard Fisher, all that lies ahead tomorrow morning, of course. Uh, the jobs report, how the Fed may be thinking about it either way. We'll get the story from him. I'll see you then. Let's do final trades. Joe Turnover, you're first. Church and Dwight, it's consolidated. Recent great gains looks like it wants to break out into the 90s. Okay. Josh Brown. AOS closing in on a 52-week high. Dividend aristocrat, 29 straight years of raising its dividend. Yeah, a couple percent up uh, today. Amy Raskin. Illumina, the stock looks like it's turning, and it has a catalyst in the near term as it resolves its, its grail issue. All right, and a farmer, Jim Labenthal. Yeah, J.P. Morgan, I know we talked about it earlier. I just don't think it's worth 5% less today than yesterday. So if you don't own it or you're underweight, this could be an opportunity to add to it. All right, I'll see you on the closing bell, of course, a couple hours' time. Got everything now in the red, led, as we talked about a while ago, by the Russell. So I'll see you then. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clear skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clear skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At one year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Tremphia.